0: And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your Radio MD.
1: Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, and I'm coming at you on 860 AM, The Answer. You can reach our website at am860theanswer.com. That's am860theanswer.com. We are an iHeart station, and this is interactive talk radio, so you can also call in. What's our call-in number, Bill? Oh my God! I caught him with his. I've got it here on my desk somewhere. Eight six six. No, I'm sorry. It's eight seven seven nine six nine eight six zero zero. That's eight seven seven nine six nine eighty six hundred. Again, we're on AM eight hundred and sixty. The answer, and you can listen to me live if you go to the website at am eight six zero the answer dot com. Click listen live every Sunday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I am your international, Dr. Bill, because you can pick me up anywhere in the world. I don't know if the Chinese can get this, but uh, most of the world can get it. They're listening, we hope. Nice people, by the way. Well, here we are. It's another July 4th. Oh, my goodness. What a great holiday. Our highest national holiday and the celebration of our great republic that we have formed. Now, some people say that we were the first republic to have a constitution as we do. However, that's not completely true. San Marino, the little postage stamp company in eastern central Italy, right on the or close to the Adriatic Sea, has been a republic since the 7th century AD when they got their freedom from the Romans. Interesting story. I'll tell you about that another time. But today we celebrate our Declaration of Independence, which is the formal document that was sent to King George III, letting him know that we no longer felt that he was fit to govern us and that we were breaking our ties and justified it with certain philosophical and theologic thoughts of the day, and also with some specific examples of how King George had failed the colonies. And you say, well, how the heck did we get here anyway? Well, it's a, a timeline that starts actually at the outset of our our very existence as a colonies or countries with with the Plymouth Rock landing and Jamestown. People had come here to escape the religious wars in Europe at the beginning of the 17th century or to escape political turmoil or to look for new opportunities. And all those things are true today, so nothing's really changed. But in 1750, both the American colonies and England were growing and the North American colonies numbered about a million people in 1750. And Georgia was the last of the 13 English settlements to be founded here. And it was a royal colony, so the king sent over a governor and set up his own council. Now in 1754, in July, there was a skirmish, a battle on the western frontier. The western frontier then for the colonies was on the western side of the Appalachian Mountains, what is now Kentucky, uh, Ohio, Indiana, Tennessee, And this started a war between the English, between Great Britain and France, one of the many wars that had been fought between Great Britain and France. And, of course, we were British colonies, so we fought with the British. Uh, One of the problems that arose immediately was that the colonial militia who fought with the British were not treated as regular soldiers. They were treated with some disdain and they did not receive the same benefits as a a soldier in the English army or the British army would receive so there was some animosity even as they fought side by side and of course the fact that there was a a fight with the indians went further to alienate the colonials from the quote quote native americans the indians and the indians sided largely with the French and by the way this is when scalping started because the French officers would say to the Indians we don't believe that you've killed as many British and colonials as you said you have and they said well what do you want us to do and they said well we want you to bring us their scalp so we can see it they don't want hands because it would be hard to identify racially just looking at a hand But if you had a scalp, you could see if it was all black hair like the Indians had because they're basically uh, Mongolians, Asians that wandered over thousands of years ago. So that's how scalping started. And we think that it was an Indian invention, and it wasn't. It was the French who started that. So the war lasted for about seven years, and it was called the Seven Years' War in Europe. And it was a worldwide war. It was a world war. It involved... Every continent, except for perhaps Australia and Antarctica, but it involved the Americas, it involved Europe, it involved parts of Asia, it involved parts of Africa, and it was fought fought on many fronts. And the Europeans who were involved were not only the French and the Great British, the English, but also the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Russians, the uh Prussians, the, the, the germinal, German state, and a number of countries in that area. Now, the war was won by Great Britain, and in Canada, General James Wolfe won a battle by taking Quebec City, and at the peace treaty, all of Canada that was under French control, which is what we now think of as Quebec, the province, was ceded to Great Britain. Great Britain also obtained unchallenged rights to the part of what we now know as the United States between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. This had been in in, in contention, had been in contest between the two great powers. So there were a number of land seedings, there were a number of shifts in power and the structure of power in Europe and throughout the world. But guess what? Great Britain was broke at the end of the war. George II, George III's father, had spent a lot of the Crown's money fighting this war with the support of Parliament in London. And so the British were trying to figure out how we're going to pay off our debts because they had borrowed heavily from banks in Great Britain and in the Netherlands. And the banks are saying, well, you got to pay your debts. Well, of course you ha- if you're a country, then you're the most powerful country in the world. Now you have to pay your debts and show that you're reliable. So where do you get money? If you're a government, well, you tax people. And so parliament in 1764 passed the sugar act to raise money from the colonies through import taxes because the colonies were a source of not only goods, but also of purchasing goods from Great Britain and from her possessions in the Caribbean. And so the Boston merchants upset about this tax because no one asked them what they thought about it. They refused to buy English luxury goods. So the fight has started. The war had officially ended in 1763, And by 1764, the colonials and the English, the king, and parliament were at it over taxes. Now, by this time, George II had died, and George III was in power. He had a different slant on things than his father. His father had promised the colonials that if they fought in the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, that he would give them the right to settle those areas between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River, which was at least in name, uh, controlled by the Native Americans, the Indians. There probably weren't enough Native Americans to mount any kind of real defense against uh, a larger group of people coming in to settle, and there was plenty of room, but feelings had hardened up pretty quickly and pretty firmly at this time between the United States or the colonials and the Indians. So the... Colonies said, we're not buying your goods if you're going to tax us without asking our opinion on it. We didn't get to vote on it. So then in 1765, the Stamp Act was passed by Parliament, and this was on the colonies, and it was the first tax to affect all the colonies equally, and it becomes law. And what it said is that every document that is recorded at the city, county, uh, state, or uh, Colonial level, whatever the jurisdictions were, that there would be a tax. It was 1% or 2%. So if you filed something and you had to pay a dollar, then you had to add another penny or two onto it. And, of course, this got everybody really riled up, up and down the, the, the colonies. Nowadays, we think 1% or 2 percent's no big deal. Back then, it provoked a revolutionary war. And so... Another act was passed, the Quartering Act, and it requires colonists to provide lodging for British troops. And the British were saying, look, we came over there and defended you guys and helped you guys kick the French and the Indians out of what is now part of the colonies, that land between the Appalachians and the Mississippi River. And you need to give something back to us for doing this. And one thing that we have to have in order to protect you your soldiers. And we can't afford to house them, so we're telling you you're going to have to house them, either in your own homes or you have to provide barracks. Well, in 1765, guess who pops up not happy about things? Patrick Henry, who protests taxation without representation because of the Stamp Act. And then in 1765, angry mobs force stamp, uh, the tax stamp distributors to resign and many merchants and other colonists agreed not to import any British goods until this could be resolved. And there were letters going back and forth between the various colonies and parliament and the king and the king was just getting more and more set in his ways, hardening his outlook and the Colonial delegates to the Stamp Act Congress in New York in 1765 rejected Parliament's right to tax without representation. Said, you can't impose a tax upon us. We're British citizens, and we have a right to have a say in Parliament, and you haven't given us that right. They were still British citizens. So bowing to pressure from British merchants, Parliament repeals the unsuccessful Stamp Act. But restates its supreme authority over the colonies. You guys have to do what we tell you. You're a colony, and we would think of it in terms of perhaps Puerto Rico, which is a territory, a possession, but not a state, and it has a great deal of autonomy. But still, if we say, "Hey, we're not paying your your bills anymore. You have to tax yourselves," then they got to do that, or they won't have an infrastructure. Well, it's it built up. And by 1770, British soldiers were sent to protect local British officials. And in Boston, there's a riot that was probably provoked by colonials throwing bottles and rocks at the British soldiers. And these are just young kids. You know, they're 20, 21, 19, 18-year-olds kind of like at Kent State with the uh, National Guard that fired into the students unprovoked. And so this was different, though, because the British soldiers were provoked by the crowd in Boston, and they fired into the crowd, and they killed several people. Now, guess who defended them? I love this. Our second president, John Adams, was the defense attorney for the soldiers who were being charged with— manslaughter for firing into a crowd without provocation. And uh, Adams got them off because they were provoked. Of course, we don't hear much about that in the history books. More acts were passed, including the Townsend Act. And so the colonials continued to boycott British goods. And then in 1773, the infamous Tea Act, It gave the British East India Company a monopoly on sales of tea. And tea was not grown in in the colonies or in the United States. We don't have the, the right weather for it. And so the colonials got really hot then, and then we had the Boston Tea Party. Patriots dressed as Indians, boarded ships in Boston Harbor, and dumped about 300 chests of tea overboard to prevent it from being unloaded and sold in the colonies. And, of course, it was a valuable commodity. You had to import that. The British brought it all the way from the East Indies and from the Indian subcontinent. And so it was a long haul. There was a lot of, of money and time that went into buying the tea, packaging it, shipping it. You know, shipping was, was a problem then as it is now, and it cost money. Well, the Virginia House of Burgess showed their support for their sister colony, Massachusetts, and called for a day of fasting and prayer. And then in 1774, delegates from each colony arrive in Philadelphia, and they formed the first Continental Congress and declare that Americans are entitled to the rights of life, liberty, and property. And they send letters to the king saying, look, we're part of you. We're blood, dude, and you need to respect us and give us a seat in Congress. And, of course, the king sent back, well, you are not old enough, you are not wise enough to have representation, and we're going to take care of you, That, that daddy approach. So as things harden up in Yorktown, Virginia residents stage a Southern Tea Party and local leaders begin to prepare for armed resistance and start developing alternative governments to replace the British if they're kicked out because several of the colonies were being run by the British directly now because of either charters like Georgia to that state, which was a charter from the king and gave him absolute power, or because the colonials had misbehaved And the king had sent in his own men and troops and taken over. And then in 1775, Parliament declares Massachusetts to be in a state of rebellion. And apparently, they've never stopped. (laughs) So the British general, Gage, is authorized to use force to control the colonies. Uh Uh-oh. British troops attempting to capture the colonial's military supplies, exchange gunfire, at Lexington and Concord, you know, Paul Revere and, you know, the British are coming, the British are coming. And Lord Dunmore, the royal governor of Virginia, seizes the colony store of gunpowder in Williamsburg. And then in New York, Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys capture Fort Ticonderoga and its heavy artillery from the British. Oh, oh my, things are heating up. And then George Washington comes on the scene. You remember him, our first president, the father of our country? The Battle of Bunker Hill and Breeds Hill take place in Boston. The British, quote, quote, win, but they suffer heavy heavy losses, so Washington strikes a blow. And because of that, Washington's appointed commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. So the Continental Army is the first professional army formed in what we now know as the United States and Congress Continental Congress enacts the Articles of War and the Articles of War were not only a declaration of war for the liberation and freedom of the colonies from British rule but also a set of rules by which soldiers would play by just like on a football field there are rules and that they would obey, obey these rules because you don't want to be accused of, of uh, crimes against humanity, especially if you're a young country trying to get, get your foot in the door around the world. And then in 1775, in late 1775, Generals Richard Montgomery and guess who? Benedict Arnold lost a battle in Quebec against the... British and so they pull back into what is now the United States. France starts sending money and military supplies to the colonies secretly and the Virginia Revolutionary Convention passes George Mason's Declaration of Rights, the first bill of rights to be adopted in the Americas and after the country is formed after we have a constitution, George Mason is again called upon to write our our bill of rights. And so he is the father of the Bill of Rights. And in July of 1776, guess what? The Second Continental Congress approves the final version of the Declaration of Independence. And so here we are at our national holiday. And I'm going to read some of this to you and we'll talk about it. If you have questions, you can call in and stop me again we're at 8779698600 that's 8779698600 now i'm not i'm not an expert on the declaration of independence but most of it is if you put it into the context of 18th century uh, english it it makes pretty good sense it's pretty easy to read it would have been for any literate soul in 1776 uh, english literature Literate, that is. So the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. We were already calling ourselves states even before there was a declaration of independence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people, that's us, to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, that's Great Britain, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separate to the separation. So what that says is that we're breaking away and we're going to have an equal right to be a country throughout the world, but we want you to know and we feel that it's necessary that we, let you and the world know why we're breaking away, why we're separating. The second paragraph, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that comes from John Locke, who was a philosopher and theologian that predated This document, by about 75 years, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. We create governments driving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That means that the people who are being governed have to give their consent to be governed. And we were not allowed to be involved in consenting or not consenting when it came to Parliament and the King and what was being passed as law upon the colonies. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So that's saying that not only do we have a right to govern ourselves, but we have a duty, a responsibility in that we have to make the decisions. And this, as I have said before, goes way, way back into Western philosophy and theology, that we have free will. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. In other words, if you if you got half a brain, you're not going to declare a revolt on piddly little things. And we consider these things that we're revolting over to be big deals. We want to govern ourselves. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. So our basic nature is that we'll put up with a lot rather than destroy what we have. The devil we know is better than the devil. We don't know. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism to their right and indeed their duty to throw off that government and to provide new guards for their future security. We've got a caller, Ian in Clearwater. What's up, Ian?
2: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Hey, I got a point, and then I want to throw out a couple questions and play devil's advocate, and I'll hang up. My first point is uh... you mentioned about the trial of uh, the british soldiers and adams defended them that you never heard about in history which is true but another thing you never heard about a revolutionary war was a fight against the central bank of england the colonists did not want a central banking cartel all of what we have today with the federal reserve but somehow or other you never hear about that in history that's my point and my kind of two questions that i want to throw out and then i'll hang up and listen You're talking about the Declaration of Independence, the Green Mountain Boys, the whole thing, and it's great. I love it. But what about those reviled, traitorous, rebellious, scoundrel dogs called the Confederacy? Didn't they do the same thing that the colonists did 87 years before? But how come it was good for the the, uh, Americans to rebel against the British, but when the Confederacy took the Declaration of Independence literally while wow, we're still running around tearing down their monuments and wanting to dig them up and disinter them. Isn't there a double standard there? So I'm going to hang up and listen to that.
1: Let me address the double standard quickly. Uh, obviously the southern states felt that their rights had been trampled upon. However the northeasterners believed that slavery was an immorality and inherently evil, and that the foundation of our country was that all men are created equal. Now, yes, our country was founded with problems, no doubt about that. Uh, Yes, slavery is an immorality. The Southerners saw it a little bit differently. They saw it as states' rights. They saw taxations that were being levied upon them without really any consent. They were indirect taxes because the North – had passed, the the majority of the the population were northerners, and Congress had passed laws enacting protective tariffs that would be taxes on things that were made outside of the United States and brought in to protect the home industries, somewhat like what the president's proposing now, although I don't think it's going to happen, and I don't believe that he's going to do it. So we had uh, a couple of different competing opinions, not only did many southerners say, well, slavery has been around since the beginning of time, it's in the Bible, what's wrong with it, the northeasterners said, you can't do this, we can't call ourselves a free nation when we have slaves, so I, I think that the north, at least the northeast, reacted not so much in the name of preserving the Union as much as in the name of abolishing slavery. Now, the, the Middle Western states, Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Wisconsin, Missouri, uh, there were a number of states that said, well, we want to preserve the Union, and we're, we're kind of 50-50 about slavery. It's something that we don't really have, and we're not really all that worried about it. But if the Southerners want to do these crazy things, that's their, their choice. So the right of self-government, in a sense, was denied the South, but the morality of the Northeast is what pushed the, the conflict to its bitter end. And I think that it's silly to tear down the Confederate statues and monuments because it's part of our history. And to say that it didn't happen or that it should not even be remembered is is silly. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's part of history. Plus, there's some really nice uh, statues and monuments. Louisville had one. Uh, at the Confederate Circle and in, in close to the University of Louisville campus in downtown uh, Louisville, where I lived during my college years. So uh, I, I realized that there were a lot of atrocities committed by the North against the South, but also by the North against their own soldiers. Uh, Grant sent thousands of troops uh, into a ditch to try and dig their way, and fight their way into Richmond, Virginia. And basically it was a turkey shoot. The Southerners were up on top of the hill and killed thousands of of Northerners. And the the kill ratio was one Southerner died for three Northerners. So it was a three-to-one conflict in terms of the kill ratio. But that's another time and another story. We'll talk about that. At another show. But let's get back to the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, I grant you that that the country was founded with some faults. But this laid the groundwork for future direction and for future political adjustments for emancipation of the slaves, for universal suffrage. Although I'm still a little bit mad about giving women the vote. Oh, my God my wife's equal to me now what am i gonna do well bill i'm gonna go grab a cup of joe and i'll be right back and everybody hang in there and we'll keep keep at it with the declaration of independence this is dr bill your radio md
3: With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. A helicopter has crashed while on the way to help evacuate people near a volcano that erupted on the main Indonesian island of Java this weekend. Villagers say at least two people were killed in the crash. Ten people have been injured because of the eruption. President Trump is asking states resisting request on sharing voter data what they are, quote, trying to hide Trump is upset that all states aren't fully cooperating with his voting commission's request for detailed information on all voters. Syrian state TV says at least eight people are dead, 12 wounded, and a series of car bomb explosions in Damascus today. And Little Rock's police chief is crediting the quick work of first responders for there being no fatalities after 28 people were injured in a shooting at a rap concert over this weekend. This is SRN News.
1: Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET, mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727 771 795 that's seven two seven 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 one two seven nine five.
4: Call 800-725-1616 now and you'll receive a free copy of Josh Milberg's book, Next Gen Annuity Strategies Revealed. As a bonus, we'll also send you a copy of The Number One Mistakes Retirees Are Making With Their Investments Today and a free DVD on how you can get up to 33% more income in retirement. Call 800-725-1616. That's 800-725-1616. Employees of J.D. Melberg Financial have the appropriate licenses for the products they offer.
0: Here's some exciting news from Shoot Straight. You can now buy firearms online. That's right. Just visit shoot-straight.com. And you can choose from a wide selection of firearms perfect for your needs. Of course, there are two locations on U.S. 301 south of MLK in Tampa and Ulmerton Road just east of 49th Street in Clearwater are always happy to supply all of your needs as well. And they feature air-conditioned indoor shooting ranges and a wide selection of all your firearms and accessories. Visit shoot-straight.com. That's shoot-straight.com.
3: We'll have some sunshine today, thunderstorm in the area this afternoon, high 90. Shower, thunderstorm, and spots early this evening, otherwise patchy clouds and a low of 78. Then tomorrow, some sunshine, then turning cloudy with a thunderstorm in the afternoon and a high of 90. Clouds and sunshine Tuesday, shower, thunderstorm, and spots, high 91. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Gigi Gets for AM860, The Answer.
1: And I'm back this is Dr. Bill that's James Brown singing living in America and we've got to have a celebration and that's what we're doing this weekend we're celebrating our independence our birth the birth of this wonderful and noble experiment I was talking about the declaration of independence and reading some of it and explaining it and we'll keep on moving on that it's a situation where the colonials felt they had been stepped upon and that they were upset with Dad. Dad said, uh, you have to pay rent. And the, the colonials said, well, look, we're grown up now. If we're going to pay rent in the house, we want to have a say in household affairs. And the king said, nah, you're not old enough. You don't have the experience. Well, it'd be like us starting a colony on Mars of human beings. And then we try to govern them, govern them from... Our Congress, that's not going to work very well for a number of reasons. One, it's a long distance, and it was several weeks to months to go from colonies, the nascent United States to Great Britain by by sailing ships in the day. And it would take conceivably weeks to several months uh, once the technology is there to get from here to the Martian colony, and so we're going to be shuttling back and forth laws and telling the Martians they have to do this and that, and they're saying, you don't understand our problems because you're not living here. You're millions of miles away on the other side of, of the solar system, and so that was the same feeling that the colonials had, and the history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states, over the colonies. To prove this, says Jefferson and the colonials, let facts be submitted to a candid world. So the first part of the Declaration of Independence is stating our rights. We have a right to self-government. Second is the beginning of why we feel we need our rights And the paragraph ends with a very nice way of flipping the bird at dad, King George III. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. So the colonials would pass a law and the crown would say, no, you can't do that. All the laws had to be approved by the British monarch in parliament and could ban colonial initiatives and making their own laws. The King blocked several colonies from attempting to tax the slave trade, and Parliament banned colonies from printing their own paper money. And the Colonials felt this was essential to uh, commerce within their colony, their state, The king has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. So the colonials would say, look, we need to uh, have a tax here so that we can raise a militia because we're having problems with pirates. The terrorists of the day back then were pirates. There were pirates plying the Caribbean and the, the American coastline. And so American shipping industry and uh, interests were threatened by pirates. And the colony said, well, look, we've got to get a military here. We need some ships. We need escort ships. We need some Marines on these ships. And the king said, no, you can't do that. I'll take a look at it and let you know what I think. Well, you can imagine that months would pass before they'd even hear anything from the king. And if it wasn't on the top of the king's list of things to do, it might be years. And the king instructed royal governors to block pending colonial legislation, and at times months or years would pass before anything was looked at. The king has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless these people relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable inestimable to them and formidable to them. To tyrants only. So the king said, okay, we'll pass your laws, but you have to bow to the legislators that I have appointed. The king has called together legislative bodies at places unusual and uncomfortable and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. So what the king would do, or indirectly through his governors, his governors would call him a meeting of the state parliament or the colonial parliament at some place other than the capital of the the colony, some place other than where the records are being kept. So if Let's say New York was the capital of New York at that time. Well, he'd call a meeting in Albany. And, of course, if you're traveling by horse and carriage and you have a business to run and you're not getting much money to be a legislative representative, it's going to be awfully tough for you to take a week or two out of your your schedule to go there when you could have done it in downtown New York. So the assemblies of Massachusetts, Virginia, and South Carolina were ordered for periods of time to convene at places which were not their usual meeting place and and which was far away from where they did their business. The king has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. So the king would say, well, you know, I don't like what, Virginia's legislature is doing, so I'm disbanding it yet. I'm going to put a governor there. He has refused for a long time after such disillusions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation, annihilation – have returned to the people at large for their exercise and the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within and again we're going back to pirates and on the interior there was already hard feelings between the indians and the colonials and the indians were attacking the colonials on on the uh, frontiers of their colonies virginia's frontier would have been kentucky my home state He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, and refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. Well, what happened, what this is addressing is that George II said, you guys can settle that land between the Appalachians and the Mississippi. So it would have been Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, all these lands that the colonials thought they would be allowed to settle. And, of course, they wanted to grow because they're just a couple of million people, and they feel vulnerable not only to attacks from without but from within, from the Indians. And George II had said, you fight in the French and Indian, the Seven-Year War, and I'll let you have people immigrate, and we don't care if they're British citizens or not. They can come from Germany or wherever you want as long as they obey the law. George III said, no, you can't do that. I'm giving all this to the Indians, and you can't have any Germans or anybody else come in. The only people who can immigrate to the colonies the United States are British citizens. Well, you know, that pretty much got everybody's dander up. The king has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. So the king said, you can't have your own courts and your own judges. I'll send somebody. You just hang tight. And he has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. So he'd say, look, I'm paying this guy, and he's going to do what I tell him. You can't appoint a judge in place of him. I'm appointing him. He's my man. He's on my payroll. He takes my directions, and that's it. He has created a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. So he he's putting in his own men. And in times of peace, he's kept standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. Why would you keep a standing army? Well, the king thought these These young'uns are getting too uppity, and I'm going to have to send somebody over and give them a good whooping. He is affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. Well, this is one of the main things in our Constitution that we made sure that the military is subservient to civil authority. And that's where it comes from. He has combined with others to subject us to a judicial foreign to our constitution and unacknowledgeable by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. After 1763, the the king assented to laws of parliament that many colonists considered illegitimate and he quartered large bodies of armed troops among us. He said, you have to take care of my troops when they're in your colonies, our colonies and then for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. And that goes back to the Boston Massacre and the defense by Adams, who got him off, and a lot of colonials felt that it was a rigged situation, although there historically now is enough evidence to show that they acted when they were attacked, the British soldiers, For cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. The king, because he was mad at the colonials, closed the port of Boston in 1774 and in 1775 at the outbreak of of the Revolutionary War, ordered total blockade of American shipping. He also seized sailors off of our ships and impressed them into service for the crown, forcing them to fight against their own people, taxed without consent no trial by jury. Once the revolution had started, the King suspended the writ of habeas corpus. And he said, there will be no jury here. Well, there'd been a jury system in place in Great Britain for centuries, brought over by none other than the Norsemen, the Vikings, who instituted the first Western system of trial by jury. And by taking people out of the colonies, Over to England to be tried for offenses, real or made up, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein the arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. And this was what happened in Quebec. And so the colonials were pointing to Quebec and saying, look what you did. It was a Catholic colony owned by France, and now you're in there and you're forcing them to do something else and be something else. You're trying to make them learn English when they speak French, and if you'll do it to them, you'll do it to us. So taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all matters. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. Well, I mean, there's no surprise there. Come on. You hit dad in the face and he's still young enough to hit you back. You're liable to get hit back. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. And by plundering the seas, he was, the crown was capturing American merchant vessels, taking the goods, taking the ship, and impressing the sailors into service as sailors for the British Navy. And he's transporting large amounts of foreign mercenaries. Remember the Hessians? Remember Washington crossing the Delaware and going over to Trenton and catching the Hessians asleep with their pants down? These were mercenaries. Where did they came from? They came from Germany. Why did he get people from Germany? Because the Georges, what we now know as, as the Windsors, were initially the Hanovers. They were Germans who came over to Great Britain to take over the the throne after the Civil War ended and William and Mary had kicked out the Stuart Catholics. He has constrained our fellow citizens, taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country. This is it, impressing, that's what I'm saying there, impressing our sailors to become executioners of their own friends and brothers. He has excited domestic insurrection among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers and merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. So the colonials were upset saying, doesn't matter how infrequent it is if these Indians are coming in here and they kill men, women, and children, take our women as, as hostages or slaves or whatever, and you're not helping us. You're now inciting them and telling them to attack us. Then we're even more upset. And, The colonials reminded the king, in every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. So we've gone to you, Dad, and we've begged you to reconsider what you're doing. Let us have our room. Give us a vote in family affairs. Don't come in our room and mess up our stuff. Don't take our stuff. Don't ground us and try and punish us in that way. We're not children anymore. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which has defined a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. That's the big finger, guys. That's the adios. Nor have we been wanting an attention to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. So we've said to Congress, I mean to the parliament, the colonials had said to the parliament, this isn't right. You guys need to stand up to the king and help us out. They appealed to the native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred. Conjuring being an 18th century word to mean we have tried to emotionally influence them by reminding them that we're the same blood. We're English. We're your cousins. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation, and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friendship. So, it goes on and on from there. You got the idea, I do believe. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in General Congress, assembled, Appealing to the supreme judge of the world, to God, for the rectitude of our intentions, for the writing and the justification of what we're telling you, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, in other words, all of us are together on this and we're acting on behalf of all the colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. That we are free, and we ought to be free, and that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. We're cutting the strings, Grandpa. We're cutting the cord, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states... They have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. That's us. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledged each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honors. And believe me, they, they pledged a lot. Most of the signers of the Declaration of Independence ended up broke, having lost their families in war, or having been killed themselves. And the great sacrifice was made on our behalf so that now you and I can enjoy the right of self-government, the right not to have troops stationed in our homes, the right of a jury trial, the right not to be held without having charges brought against us, the right to bail, the right to free speech and assembly, the right to own a gun, not because we want to go out and shoot each other, but because we want to be armed in the event that the government, the central government becomes too oppressive, Washington steps down on us too hard, and we have that inherent right and duty and responsibility To revolt. We do have the power of the ballot box, and that's always preferable. And we will suffer injuries and harms as long as they're not too great. We'll live with taxations that we don't agree with, but we want to have the power to redress that in Congress in Washington, D.C., and we do, and we are. And so this is our great nation. This is how we were formed. This is why we came about. And guess what? There isn't anything new going on today that wasn't addressed in the Declaration of Independence. In terms of our rights as as human beings, as citizens of our country, as ambassadors for our country, for wherever we go in the world. And i got to tell you, it's just amazing to me how many places I've been and how much peoples of the world look up to us and welcome us. We have a duty, a responsibility, and an honor to carry that torch. And we're going to carry it, folks. And that's what we're celebrating this weekend. I want to wish everybody a happy Fourth of July. I love all you guys. I'll see you next week. This is Dr. Bill,
0: your Radio MD. Oh, 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 oh.
2: Don't touch that now. <laughs> it's a happy day, St. Petersburg, Florida.